if you absolutely had to choose, would you rather be good or free? Is good just another layer of social control? Or is freedom just another word for nothing less to lose? Could you accept being good if it meant that the you would have to embrace the void? Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 255 of Embrace the Void. Whether or not you had any say in the matter, welcome. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Dr. Alfred Mealy, a professor currently serving as the William H. and Lucille T. Workmeister Professor of Philosophy at Florida State University. Dr. Mealy is an author of several books, including Free Will and Luck, Free, Why Science Hasn't Disproven Free Will, and most recently, Free Will, An Opinionated Guide. Dr. Mealy has resisted taking a firm stance in the free will debate, endorsing a cautious pro-free will position without fully committing to compatibilism. For example, he presents the compatibilist claim whether or not determinism is true if a sane, unmanipulated people consciously make reasonable decisions to do something on the basis of good information and no one is pressuring them, they freely decided to do that thing. You say, if you had to bet, you'd bet that claim is true, even though you're not fully convinced of the truth of compatibilism. His approach sits in stark contrast with my luck all the way down perspective. So I'm excited to have him on to understand why he believes that the anti-free will view is less credible than some versions of the pro-free will view. So, Alfred, would you like to say hi to the void? Yeah, hello. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I've read quite a few of your papers, books, whatnot over the course of being obsessed with this topic. And it's exciting to get to have a conversation with someone after reading a bunch of their stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be here. What I can do is start off by saying what I do in the new book. And in the course of that, that, I'll answer your question. Yeah. And if you feel like if you want to share a little bit also of like what brought you to the free will debate, why you felt like you wanted to write about this topic much at all. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I could start there. I started my career as a commentator on Aristotle, and eventually, after a a few years teaching, probably three or four years into it, I got very interested in some of the issues Aristotle dealt with, especially weakness of will. And so my first book uh, was Irrationality, an essay on akrasia, which is the Greek word for weakness of will, uh, self-deception and self-control. And I also worked on philosophy of action in a general way, uh, not including free will, just uh, what intentions are, what desires are, how those things are related to intentional action, 
what motivation is, you know, questions like that. And in the mid-90s, I, I finally thought I was in a position to tackle free will, but I didn't like the expression free will because some people treated it in a pretty mystical way. So mm-hmm. I wrote about free will under the guise of autonomy, which is pretty mm-hmm. closely related. And I wrote this book, uh, Autonomous Agents. And that was my first foray into the free will literature. So Aristotle, action theory, free will, it's a pretty natural uh, progression. I, I took a similar progression, actually. I came from virtue theory. So we, we come from a similar place. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And even back in 1995, when Autonomous Agents was uh, published, I was agnostic on this dispute between compatibilism and incompatibilism that you mentioned. Should mm-hmm. I define those terms or would just go with them? Uh, why don't you go ahead and just say briefly how you understand them? Um, just, you know, we've, we've talked about free will quite a bit on this show before, but just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Okay, that's a good idea. So both terms, compatibilism and incompatibilism, are defined relative to determinism. Uh, And in the free will literature, determinism is usually understood as, well, this is what a deterministic universe would be. A universe in which a complete list of the laws of nature and a complete description of the universe at any point in time would logically entail all other truths about the universe, including all the truths about anything, about everything anybody would ever do. So that's how we tend to understand determinism in this literature. And then compatibilism is the thesis that free will is compatible with determinism. The simple way to think about it is, so there can be a universe in which determinism is true, and there are people with uh, free will. Mm -hmm. That's compatibilism. And the incompatibilists say, no way. You know, if determinism Mm -hmm. is true, then nobody's free. And then, you know, they have to come up with their reasons for that. And one reason often given is this. Uh, If determinism is true, then nobody ever could have done otherwise than they did. But being able to do otherwise than you did is a necessary condition uh, for free will. That's something that I can talk about a bit later if you want. There's a whole bunch of interconnected stuff. Yeah. And I mean... I think it's worth mentioning I am an incompatibilist. I don't love the language of could have done otherwise. I think that it sort of kind of leads us down confusing, you know, possible world, you know, dimension kinds of roads. And I think that there's a a better definition of of luck and by extension free will that, that is centered around the idea of control and whether you had the right kind of control necessary to do something. Um, maybe that could be cashed out in terms of could un- could have done otherwise. But I, I personally have just found like it just confuses people. I think when, when I get into when, I, when we try to talk about could have done otherwise, given that there is only, you know, like one way to understand determinism is to say there's just the actual world, right? There's the world that actually occurs based on the way that it kind of plays out, as you were saying, based on physical laws and the initial states of the universe or whatever that was. So, you know, I I just want to, in case like we get into a place where it might seem like in order to hold the incompatibilist view, you have to have this idea of could have done otherwise. I just wanted to say, I, I think there's a version of incompatibilism that doesn't necessarily require that. Okay, I see. Yeah, and there is actually a version of incompatibilism that doesn't require uh, the ability to do otherwise. And that's going to depend on what you think about Frankfurt-style cases. But let, let's hold off on that. 
mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll set things up with this new book. And then we can talk about Frankfurt style cases, which I talk about in the book or whatever you like. Sure. So the new book is aimed at a perfectly general audience. So any educated person, really, it doesn't presuppose any knowledge of philosophy. And what I do in it is to spell out two pro-free will views, and one is a compatibilist view, and the other one is an incompatibilist view. And the way I get to them is really a very simple way. I offer sufficient conditions from each of those two different points of view for a claim like Joe freely decided to A at a certain Mm -hmm. time. And uh, this takes us right back to your question. So the compatibilist idea is, and these are just sufficient conditions. It's not claimed that the conditions are necessary. That if a person is sane and rational and undeceived, well-informed, nobody's pushing him around, and he makes a reasonable decision on the basis of good information, uh, he makes that decision freely. So that's a compatibilist sufficient condition for freely deciding to do something. And incompatibilists, of course, think that isn't enough. What I do for incompatibilists is to present a pro-free will that's pretty minimal. It includes all the compatible stuff that I just mentioned. And it adds this, that the decision is open to the agent in a way it couldn't be. Um, That is, alternative decisions are open to the agent in a way they couldn't be if the world were uh, deterministic. Mm-hmm. And I call this openness, deep openness. And here's how I present it uh, to the audience in that book anyway. Um, here's a model. It's a toy model, and you know, eventually it'll get left behind. But here it is. So imagine that, uh, let's say it's me, I'm taking a walk in the woods, and I get to a fork in the path, and I can go left or I can go right. I can turn around or sit down or whatever. So I have these different options. Mm-hmm. And imagine that in my head, there's a little neural uh, roulette wheel. And once I'm uncertain about what to do, the wheel starts spinning. And it's an indeterministic wheel, of course. And then there's this little indeterministic ball that bounces along the wheel. And different segments of the wheel represent different options. Like 20 Mm -hmm. segments here might represent going left and 15 there going right and so on. And the balls landing in a segment is the person's deciding to do that thing. So that's how we model uh, this decision, indeterministic decision. Uh, This will include an ability to do otherwise because there are these different options open to the person at the time. So that libertarian view... Uh, Mm -hmm. libertarian views are incompatibilist views that say, yes, there is free will. That libertarian view uh, opens up uh, the ability to do otherwise. Um, So those are the two uh, conceptions of free will that I float. And then I look at the pros and the cons and so on. And I stay on the fence the whole way. I present both and talk about advantages and disadvantages. And then... um, There are three chapters on skeptical arguments about free will, arguments for the non-existence of free will. And two of those chapters are about uh, theoretical arguments. And then the third one is about neuroscientific arguments. Um, The neuroscientific arguments I wrote a lot about in other books, so I just try to condense it all. 
but in a simple way into a single uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to say I coming from an incompatibilist position. Not not only do I believe in the like I don't I don't think we need to talk about the could have done otherwise. I also avoid discussion of neurobiology involved discussion of the you know the studies of of uptake and things like that i don't you know following sam harris i don't i don't believe that sam harris is right to draw on those things when talking about how we can know that people don't have free will i don't think we need that to prove that people um don't have free will just like i also i think generally try to avoid debates about determinism versus indeterminism so i'm sympathetic to the like hard determinist or hard luck view that if it's indeterministic, you still don't have the kind of free will that you want. I know you address that somewhat um, in the um, in in your book. Um, it does seem to me, though, that, you know, the, what you were describing there about like the ping pong, you know, about the ball randomly bouncing around. Right. That wouldn't be the kind of will that we could want in the right kind in the way that we're talking about here. Um, and I think let, let me I want to back up a little bit because I think before we get into the sort of arguing about different conceptions of free will, I think it's really valuable to see if make sure that we agree because I think we have slightly different approaches. Um, but I think we agree somewhat on the stakes of this debate, right? What is what does it matter whether or not we can attribute free will to someone? Um, it seems to me that the main reason we do and and might want to attribute free will to people is because we want to attribute moral responsibility to them so that we can then discuss just desserts and blame or praise or punishment or rewards or things like that. Um, is that how you understand the kind of stakes of the free will debate? Or do you think that there's something else here that's sort of more important than that? Well, I, I think that is important. Um, I tend not to talk much about punishment and uh, legal systems and that sort of thing, but yes, I think free will is is connected to moral responsibility and punishment, blame, etc. But I also think that uh, an ordinary self-conception, that is the way people tend to think of themselves, includes this idea of free will. So that if mm-hmm. they didn't have it, this uh, assumption that they make about themselves, and it's a deep one, a pervasive one, mm-hmm. um, you know, would be false. And that uh, could seriously change their outlook on things. So uh, I think yeah, actually, I agree with you here. I think, you know, I usually focus on the moral side, but it, to me it is, it is it radically interconnected with the uh, debate over whether there, there is an independent self, right? You need an independent self as the thing on which to hang moral responsibility, it seems like, and our everyday conception that people experience is that they have this kind of independent self. And I think my view involves denying both of those things together, I think, because they're connected. Okay. That's yeah. You're getting at there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is also, mm-hmm. you know, there's some uh, social psychological literature indicating that people who uh, believe in free will do better at work and school and so on and are happier. Than yeah. People who I want to don't. Right. You mentioned that literature and I've read like a lot of that literature, the Baumeister literature. And I think there are pretty substantial critiques by folks like Nadelhofer about how the free will instrument, the belief, the belief in free will instrument that's used in that particular literature is flawed in various ways and that it um, may be giving sort of 
false impressions about correlations between belief and free will and certain kinds of behavior. Um, that being said, I'm also, you know, if we assume for the sake of argument that there are correlates of free will belief in the moral landscape, um, I think first you have to make a discussion, you have to have a discussion about like, there appear to be correlates um, like reduced desire for punitive justice. Yeah. And if you think that that's a good thing, like if you, if you want to, you know, if you want to see society move towards a restorative or rehabilitative model, you might consider that like a moral benefit, right? If like, I think broadly speaking, there's a suggestion that belief in free will might be correlated with a conservative worldview and, lack of belief in free will could more likely be correlated with a more progressive liberal worldview. Um, and so it could be the case that you, you know, think that people, we should be moving people in one of those directions because of those kinds of um, political implications. Now that would, of course, you know, if, you know, that's a separate argument from whether or not we actually have free will, right? Because if you're, if you, if you agreed for the sake of argument that like there was a, a knockdown argument against free will, then those objections would at best be an argument in favor of like a noble lie approach, right? Yeah, I agree. And in my own work on free will, um, I just go for the question, you know, whether we have it or not. And I don't, uh, I don't take a pragmatic route to it. But the reason I mentioned the pragmatic stuff is uh, it's, it's connected to our self-image. Mm -hmm. uh, there is some evidence, too, on the other side that belief in free will makes people more punitive, or at least is correlated with being more punitive than disbelief in free will, which is understandable in a way, too. And so pragmatically, you'd have maybe positives and negatives on both sides. But yeah, that's not the route I go. What I, what I want to know is, uh, do we have free will? And to, to answer that, you know, you have to start with, well, what do we mean by it, by free will? Right, which is why I think it's important to understand the stakes right because you could this could become a purely semantic debate if we don't understand what 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 like the concept of free will has to carry in terms of further concepts and so that's why i think it's important to highlight and like the, that psych that psych research is useful i think for core for, for highlighting that uh belief in free will is psychologically connected to moral responsibility as well as it, it seems intuitively philosophically connected to it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I those are, yeah. And those are connected to the independent self as you're just, as you're saying as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. So that being said, right. What kind of free will is sufficient in order to ground that sense of independent self and moral responsibility um, and it seems like your view is, you know, this kind of if you're if you end up in this position where you can act in the way that I, I described in that quote, that we would then treat we should then treat you as being morally responsible and and punish your reward accordingly. Is that generally how your view, you know, even though you're agnostic, let's say, at least for now on the compatibilism question? Well, yeah, given that I'm agnostic about the dispute between compatibilists and incompatibilists, I can't just flat out endorse that uh, claim. That is the compatibilist sufficient condition. Uh, in the end, you know, I, I might do it, but I've never done it in print. And this, uh, you know, the passage you quoted was one where I think somebody's holding a gun to my head and I have to make a choice. So if I had to, I'd say, mm. yeah, compatibilism is true. But it's not that, you know, I have any knockdown argument that uh, a compatibilist conception 
is correct. What I do think, and what I say, is that this disjunction, uh, either compatibilism is true and we have free will, or incompatibilism is true and we have free will, is more credible than the thesis that we don't have free will. And to get there, part of what I look at is the uh, no free will arguments. Mm-hmm. And I try to you know, explain to the readers uh, why those arguments are unpersuasive. So if you want me to, you know, talk yeah, about this, yeah. yeah, we could do that. Let's talk specifically about them, especially. I think the one, the second one that you put forward is the one that most closely mirrors my own kind of Nagel moral luck regress problem, which is the problem of constitutive luck, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I can agree with you that there is this thing that people do where they act you know, in a way where they're not coerced and et cetera, you know, all the caveats in place and such, and that it would be good for them to act in that way that like that's conducive to human flourishing, let's say. Um, But whether or not they have the ability to do that is a matter of luck, it seems to me. And I'm not clear whether or not you deny that. Um, And if you don't, I'm not clear how it could be that that kind of thing could ground moral responsibility if it's the case that everything about our constitution comes down to luck, doesn't that then infect, you know, all of our behavior going forward, essentially? Yeah. So let's see which version of the infinite regress argument we want to use. We could do Galen Strassen's. Is that okay with you? Well, so, I mean, we could use the one that I like to use, which is the, you know, like reasons and character problem, right? So, you know, you, you tell me an action that you did in your life that you think was free, do you, ha- do you have ones that you would point to where you're like, I- I'm confident saying that this was a freely chosen action? Me? Uh, yeah, sure. Tons. Actually, tons. Yeah. Um, like uh, deciding, yeah. deciding to come onto this show. Okay, great. That's a, a yeah. poor choice, but let's let's assess it a little <laughs> bit here. Um, so why? what was your reason for coming on the show? Um, the editor at Oxford University Press encouraged me to, you know, promote this new book. And uh, I had several invitations. This one sounded interesting. I did some others, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I had a, a good reason to do it. So it was a sane, rational decision, uncompelled, uncoerced, uh, etc. I see. And was there something about, you know, your character that you feel like made you feel like you picked this show over another show or something like that, or picked this show over doing one less show or something? Uh, Yeah, something about my, I guess we could say, beliefs and desires and so on. Yeah. And do you feel like you chose those beliefs and desires? No, but I don't think you need to. uh, So why do you think you don't need to? All right. Yeah. So I think now we should just take a step all the way back. Okay. So... Our concept of free will, and the same goes for our concept of moral responsibility, is uh, a concept for real people. It's for us. And we know right off the bat, we don't even have to think about it, that early on in our lives, like when we were uh, 10 days old or whatever, we weren't doing anything freely and we weren't morally responsible for that. Mm -hmm. So built into our concept should be the following idea. Somehow, we get from being uh, flailing neonates to being morally responsible people and free people. Somehow, at least, you know, in principle. But um, unless, you, unless you believe that doesn't ever happen, though, right? If you're a no-free-will person, you would say that's begging the question. 
Yeah, I, I think then you're probably considering some concept that's not the normal one. Well, so what do you mean some by normal here? That would, build, that would build into it the idea that you'd have to have an infinite past in order well, to... Well, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the regress argument does require you to have something that's impossible, but the whole point of the no free will view is to deny that free will is possible. So if your argument is any argument that denies the possibility of free will is doing something unfair, then that seems to be sort of ruling out incompatibilism entirely without sort of explaining why it's, I mean, so let me, let me put it another way, right? Mm -hmm. Nagel in his moral luck paper says, look, this is not a, an unusual conception. We start from a very conventional common intuition, which is you can only be held morally responsible for things that are under your control, right? If I'm born a sociopath, I don't understand morality. I can never learn morality. I can never achieve what you're describing. It seems to me that we would say you couldn't be held morally responsible, even if your actions are wrong, even if we're going to prevent you from doing them, etc. And then it seems also true to me that the, whether or not I, I was born a sociopath comes down to luck. And those are all common intuitions. Right? I haven't appealed to anything weird or unconventional to, to create what seems to be this really, really genuine problem for moral responsibility. So I don't think... I don't think you can say, well, my my approach is the common sense one. I think the the problem originates from the common sense understanding of moral responsibility. Well, I was uh, putting that out there as you know something to think about. That I mean, just one consideration that you might be talking about something other than what most people are talking about when you use the expression free will. Given that you know it's a concept for us, and it might turn out that it's one for us, but. You know, we just don't satisfy it. That's a possibility. Now, about having control over what you desire, what you believe, and so on, um, you know, consider a simple case like this. It's in, uh, I think it's in my book, Autonomous Agents. So there's this little kid around five years old or so, and uh, he's afraid of his basement, afraid of the dark basement. And his sister's a year older, and he sees that she goes down, and she's not afraid. And he thinks boy, it'd be good to be more like my sister. And so he asks himself, how can I bring this about? How can I uh, reduce my fear, say? And he comes mm -hmm. up with a plan. And the plan is every day he'll walk as far down into the basement as he can and stay there as long as he can before he gets too frightened. And then he'll go back up. Uh, and over time, the strategy works. So his fear of the basement, which of course caused a desire not to be in the basement, uh, is eliminated, and he's changed his desires. He's changed his motivational profile. Or simply by trying things, like somebody who's never had beer. Somebody says, hey, try try this beer. See if you like it. He's never had right. a desire for beer. He likes the beer. So the uh, his desire profile changes as a consequence of his behavior. So it's not as though we have no control over what we desire and believe. In fact, we have lots of control yep. over what yep. we believe, too. So suppose... Uh, well, right, but the, the incompatibilist can agree with all of that while saying it's still luck whether or not you have a sibling who acts as a proper role model for you, whether or not you are put in the right situations to do the right thing and so develop... The, I mean, like, you and I are both Aristotelians by, by training, right? Aristotle very... Uh, honestly, I think admits that whether or not you are habituated into the virtues comes down to luck. He doesn't use that exact term, but there are passages where he essentially acknowledges that it is, a, you know, that constitutive luck, that circumstantial luck 
are quite real. Um, so I, I like in each of these scenarios, like it doesn't seem like you're describing something that escapes this infection of luck that intuitively seems to undermine responsibility. Yeah. See, it's the last part that I disagree with. I think that uh, life is luck infused, but that the luck isn't incompatible with free will and moral responsibility. Uh, think about games uh, like uh, blackjack, a game like blackjack. Uh, there's a lot of luck involved. It's a matter of luck what cards you get, what you're dealt. But if you're a skilled player, you know a probability chart and you know how to bet. And if you're even more skilled, you can count cards, which will give you a, a better chance of winning. But you can get the odds of a kind it. of luck. That's just constitutive luck. You're just saying if you have enough constitutive luck, you can overcome the circumstantial luck. Now, is being skilled just a matter of luck or is it partly a matter of past behavior? Behavior, past behavior would also be luck, as the whole point of partly. the regress problem is that it's all luck all the way down. Yeah, it if doesn't you just show point that, up, you know. It doesn't well, show I, 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 that I, I, it's all luck all the way down. But so where does where, where is the event that is separate from the causal chains that are infected with luck? If you acknowledge that there's a bunch of luck running around, how can there be a moment, an event? Like, wouldn't you need a kind of uncaused cause or something to no. effectively escape these chains of luck? No, no. What's the argument for this claim? If there's any luck at all involved in a causal sequence, mm -hmm. then the upshot is just a matter of luck. What's the argument for that? Because you would look at, I mean, like, you, you. first of all, I would say it's intuitively plausible, and then I would point to examples. Um, so here's here's an example, right? Uh, this is from Kaufman, who, who lays out the luck infection thesis. Um, so let's imagine you get out of work five minutes early, right? Um, which, which seems like a lucky event, right? Anytime we get out of work five minutes early, we can, I think we can qualify that as lucky. Uh, you go to go pick up your child, you get to their school and you're there five minutes early. And as a result, you happen to be there in time to save them from getting hit by a car as they're crossing the road, okay? You save the child's life. Kaufman says, saving the child's life doesn't count as luck. Do you agree or disagree? I think you can be responsible for saving the child's like life, even though luck was involved in the process. And why is that? Because you haven't yet given me an argument that if any luck at all is involved in a process, then the output of that process is just a matter of luck. I, I'm, well, I'm trying to. I was trying to build that argument by showing. I think we have contrary to what Kaufman says, a very reasonable inference that. If, if leaving early is necessary for you to get there in time to save the child, if it's a necessary condition, which it seems like it is for you to save the child and saving the child is lucky, then it seems to follow that, that like it is, uh, or sorry, sorry. And, then, and that saving the child occur. Sorry, let me put it this way. If you are lucky leaving early, Right. And saving the child is a good thing. It seems like that good thing is brought about as a result necessarily of the luck. And if we believe like unless you want to reject the control condition and say that you should be held responsible for things that aren't under your control, then it seems like we have to infer that the saving of the child was, while good, also lucky. Yeah. And so this is what I think about that. So imagine that the person saves the child. Maybe the child is about to drown in a little wading pool, and the person saves the child by pulling them out. 
was the person in control of his behavior in pulling the child out? And I say, yes. Was he lucky to be in that position? Yes. But he was in control of the behavior that he performed at the time. He intended to pull the child out. That intention played the right sort of causal role in generating bodily motions. That's control. Um, so that would be a process where we have luck in the background in the causal chain, and we have the agent in control of what he does in a situation where he's lucky to be present. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is what you would need, an argument that if there's any luck back there in the causal process, there's no responsibility and no free action later on. And think of them in terms of control. So what I think, anyway, is that in every case of intentional action, some control is uh, exercised. So we intend to do something and we do it because we intend to do it. And if you're a causalist like me about things, you're thinking that the intention or its neural realizer is playing the right sort of causal role in generating the behavior. So the um, parent then has control over his bodily movements uh, when he saves the child. In, in my example, he's just picking the kid up out of a little wading pool that the kid might have died in. And he was lucky to be in that position. But the, his luck involved <clears throat> in being in that position is entirely compatible with his exercising a great deal of control over what he does at the time. And then the question would be something like, is it freedom level control? Is it moral responsibility level control? Right. And you could say he's lucky to be in that position. And my reply would be, well, it looks to me like he's lucky to be in a position where he can exercise freedom level control and moral responsibility level control in performing an action that saves the kid. So I don't see how the luck uh, precludes moral responsibility or freedom. Right. So what I would say is every part of his action, his ability to do it successfully, the fact that he does it successfully, the consequences, his desire to save the child, every piece of it is also luck, is in fact, you know, is part of these chains that go back to a point you know, where I think we can agree that he definitely had no kind of control, right? Not even the kind of control. So like part of the problem here is an ambiguity between what people I think nowadays call like direct control versus relevant control, right? So when Thomas Nagel raises the problem of moral luck, he's not saying you can't pick up a glass, you can't pull someone out of a pool, right? You can't choose, you know, you can't drive drunk in the sense that you can't make yourself drunk and then go driving, right? What he's saying is you don't have control over the choice to drive drunk in a way that we can hang moral responsibility because there's not really an independent you. There's this illusion of an independent self that we all kind of buy into and continue to believe in, even though it seems like we have a compelling argument that that illusion is false. And he even says that he's not sure that he can fully disabuse himself of the illusion, but it's not because he denies that the argument is sound. He recognizes, I think, that the the moral luck argument does seem to, like if you if you think that like if I randomly grow a tumor in my brain that makes me go on a shooting spree or turns me into a pedophile, and that absolves me of moral responsibility, or if I'm a small child and I shoot someone and I don't know that it's going to kill them, like that absolves me of moral responsibility. If you open that door for exculpatory circumstances, 
it seems to spread like the you know the exculpatory judgment seems to spread to all yeah, choices the alleged is, problem. The, is the problem I, I think that what you would need to get that sort of mm -hmm. argument to work which i've never been persuaded by but what you would need is something like a luck transmission principle so if you were lucky to be born in thus and such circumstances then you're lucky to do everything you ever do after that um so what's going to be the argument for that right. uh, transmission principle and then if we got it and luck uh, plays a smaller role over time, uh, then we'd want to know, well, is the luck incompatible with free will and moral responsibility? So say you have a transmission principle, but luck gets watered down over time because mm -hmm. people gain by the control people exert over what? their behavior. So now you've granted that there is a kind of control that agents exert over their behavior, like the control you exert which is also a kind of luck, though. Like, if I'm lucky enough to be virtuous, or let's say I'm lucky enough to run into somebody who I want to idealize, and they're a good person, and so I, mm -hmm. I mimic their behavior, right? And I get better as a person because I wanted to be like them, and they're good, and they're a good role model in this kind of way, right? I'm lucky that I had a good role model. I'm lucky that I idealized them. I'm lucky that I was able to habituate myself to act more like them it, you know it's just luck pushing on other luck there's no thing in in my worldview that that like seems to be separate from luck and and i do think we have this principle that you're asking for the luck infection thesis just says you know if event a is caused by a prior event and that event is luck then event a itself is also luck um and i think there's plenty like there's just like lots and lots of examples and no counter examples that i can think of that would undermine that fundamental principle so it seems like the burden of proof is on people who want to claim that there is something separate from these endless causal chains of luck to explain what that thing is and how it works and i think what they're going to end up with is an uncaused cause so that, like i think the burden of proof is on that 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 compatibilist position okay so let's think about this luck transmission principle and about luck getting watered down over time as a possibility. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of luck for me that I was born when and where I was. I certainly had no control over that, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, and mm -hmm. then that luck is in this causal chain that leads to stuff I'm doing now. Uh, were there times that I did exercise some control over what I did? Yes, many times. Uh, many, many times over many, many years. I'm exercising control over my hands right now. Um, Direct control, though, not, not, not well, relative, to figure relative out what, control because you haven't what, what? shown that you acquired that or something yet. You're just saying you yeah. acted over the and course of your involved. life. But we, everyone, everyone, everyone agrees that you took actions over the course. The point is that we think that the actions well, are just events like all the other causal events, events but, around um, you. So what we're wondering is whether the luck gets watered down in its influence over time. So we have a time when I have zero luck, I mean, zero control over what happens. That's when I'm born. I have no control over that. I have control over all the intentional actions I perform. Now, why should we think that given that I do have some control over all the intentional actions I perform, that those actions are just as lucky for me as the luck for me involved in my being born in a certain place at a certain time.
I, th I think your argument works on an equivocation there, though. It, you're, you're jumping from relevant control to direct control and saying, well, if I acquire direct control over the course of my life, that proves that I have more control than I did before. But the argument is you never had relevant control and no amount of direct control equals relevant control. So it's not you're going from zero percent to zero percent well, I mean, on that the relevant something control have scale. To show. So now we have control in the picture all the control I exert over all my intentional actions. And then you would need to show that none of that is relevant control, where relevant means relevant to free, right. free will. And that's, that's the regress argument is the, is the argument. I'm confused because like the regress argument is specifically to show direct control does not equal relevant control. Examples where how does it show it? Though? Well, it how does it, it show shows it? it by showing that like all events of direct control are traced back causally to events that are not direct control and so it undermines the idea that you have relevant control um also the examples of you know individuals acting in ways where we do not hold them morally responsible because we recognize the actions were beyond their control in the right kind of way shows us that there are at least some situations where direct control and relevant control come apart and then the luck argument would be that's every situation. No, that's not an argument. That's, that's the luck claim. So what, what we want to know is given that luck leaves room for all this control that's involved in intentional action, what is it about luck that precludes free action and moral responsibility? So why is it never the case that the control involved in intentional action is free will level, level control or moral responsibility level control? And so far, all we have is stipulation. And the stipulation mm -hmm. is, hey, luck was involved back here in the causal chain. So nothing forward in that chain uh, involves freedom level or moral responsibility level control. You know, why Why should I believe that? I, I would, I, well, here's what I, I guess I, I feel like we're maybe at an impasse because I think I'm presenting examples in an argument. You feel like it's just an assertion. It seems to me that it's a compelling argument and that it has changed sort of my mind and other people's minds. I'm not sure how else to lay out what seems to me compelling about the argument, except to just, you know, reiterate that it seems like, you know, there are many cases where we acknowledge that if I got lucky at one moment and that allows me to do something at the next moment that that action in the next moment was the luck carries over in this kind of way, it just seems like. Uh, the compatibilist wants to carve out a space in which that isn't the case for the sake of maintaining these ideas of moral responsibility, in which case it seems like the burden is on them to explain how you can have this different kind of causal behavior, it seems like. You know, let's consider another case. I know what your response is going to be, but let, let's just think about the case. So there's somebody mm -hmm. who was very lucky to show up uh, at a bank, let's say, at a certain time. He caught an earlier train than he intended, and so as a matter of luck, he's there. And then he does something really heroic in the bank. He uh, saves the lives of all the customers by tackling the armed robber, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. So he was lucky to be in that position. What he did was very heroic, and we might think, and it involved you know, exercising control because he's acting intentionally. And we might think mm -hmm. uh, he deserves moral credit for that, and maybe he did it freely. Um, now, you could say, oh, no, just because he was lucky to be there, 
his act is unfree and he doesn't deserve any moral credit for it. But that isn't the response mm-hmm. you gave, was it? It was, oh, well. No, we no, can... that's the response I give. You oh, do yeah. give that one? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I don't think he deserves praise or blame. I think we can be happy that something good happened and he can be happy that something good happened. But no one deserves praise or blame in in my view, it seems like. But no, there's the just because he was lucky to be there. Is that why he doesn't deserve praise and blame? Because he, well, because, lucky he was lucky to, to, because he was lucky to be there, because he was successful, you know, all of the circumstantial, all of the consequential, all the constitutive luck that goes into the event going well. Like, like you know, imagine an alternative scenario in which he tries to save people and instead everybody gets murdered and the whole thing gets blown up, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's praising him in that situation, even though the only difference there would be things beyond his control, if we assume that like there was a fail safe that he didn't know about and the bomb goes off or something like that. Right. So it seems to me there's like literally an infinite number of things, factors beyond your control that undermine in the present and the past, the idea that there could be this separate individual self who can have moral responsibility. Yeah. Okay. So now we have these two different claims. I'd sort of like to pin you down. So what I asked was, are you suggesting that just because he was lucky to be there, he doesn't act freely and isn't morally responsible, you know, for saving the people. That's one claim. And then, but earlier than when we approached a question like that, you said, well, you know, he was lucky to be raised the way he was raised and lucky to hang out with different people and so on. So I just wonder, is it the, the one instance of luck that you think is incompatible with his acting freely in the bank or is it his whole causal history or, or what? So when I say it's luck all the way down, I mean, literally all of us are luck all the way down. Every one of our actions are, you know, like to quote Nagel, right? All actions are really events and all agents really objects. And it is true all the way down that like he he was lucky to be born where he was. He was lucky to be raised. He was lucky to be in every moment that led up to that particular moment. I don't I don't see how you escape that reality, um, you know, like. Yeah, I guess I guess that that's my it, it is all like I, I can talk about one, you know, different kinds of luck in different scenarios, but I'm just trying to keep it concrete. Really, there's like an infinite chain of luck statements that you can make about every moment. Yeah, and I, I agree, too, that life is luck infused. But once again, I don't see the luck as incompatible with free will and moral responsibility. Now, if you're unlucky enough to have a, a tumor that drives your behavior and the behavior is crazy, well, you know, you're not acting freely. But we're just talking about, you know, sort of normal luck in normal cases. Yeah, but I that think- is normal luck. I mean, the difference between having the tumor and not having the tumor is just luck, right? Yeah. What else could it be? That's a difference. In, well, it all depends on how you got it. But yeah, that's a difference in luck. So if it's a difference in luck, then there's no morally salient difference between me and the person with the brain tumor. That's the, all of my, well, all, if all of my moral behavior is only possible because I don't have a brain tumor, right? And the fact that I don't have the brain tumor is a matter of luck. Yeah. How does it not necessarily follow that all of my behavior is good because I'm lucky enough not to have a brain tumor? Yeah, you're lucky enough not to have a brain tumor and you wouldn't be responsible uh, for what you did if you had the brain tumor. But once again, right. I don't I don't see how this luck that I'm admitting is there is incompatible with your acting freely and morally responsibly. 
Well, if it undermines moral responsibility to have the brain tumor, why would it possibly not undermine moral responsibility not to have the brain tumor if literally the only difference between them is luck and we've agreed that luck can't be a morally salient difference, right? I don't I don't even see the uh, the logic there. It just sounds like a non sequitur. I'm not sure I understand. So well, if, if, if you're to... born, let, let, let me back up, right? If, I, if I'm born a sociopath and I act <laughs> and I harm somebody, right? Yeah. Do you think that I have moral responsibility? No. Okay. So it's it's just bad luck that I did that and I should be restrained, but I'm, I didn't act immorally or anything. Or I didn't, I didn't have moral responsibility. We will say I acted immorally, but I didn't have moral responsibility. Does that seem yeah. correct on your view? Yeah. Okay. If I'm not born a sociopath, mm-hmm. right, then I'm lucky enough not to be born a sociopath, correct? Yeah. Okay. Then it seems to necessarily follow that I'm lucky enough to be able to act morally. Okay. And if that is, and, and if being lucky enough to, being unlucky enough to be a sociopath absolves me of moral responsibility, then being lucky enough not to be a sociopath also absolves me of moral responsibility in the same way for all the same reasons, it seems like. Yeah, that's what I claim to be a non sequitur. And, and this is why. Okay. So suppose we said um, the sociopath was unlucky insofar as he's incapable of satisfying sufficient conditions for acting freely. And then we lay out Mm -hmm. the conditions and maybe we try sane and rational, uncompelled, uncoerced, and so on. Uh, And then we say, well, the person who isn't a sociopath is lucky enough to satisfy those conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't follow from the sociopaths not being able to satisfy those conditions owing to luck that owing to luck, the other guy uh, isn't able to satisfy sufficient conditions for free action. He is able to satisfy these alleged sufficient conditions for free action. So given that, your inference has to be invalid, unless you have a, a really weird view about luck. Um, I, I No, I just it seems to me that if you accept the control condition and that the, the essence of the control condition is that if you have two individuals whose behavior is identical, except for a factor of luck, right, the, the, then they can't have a moral difference between them, it seems like, right? No, and that, that I deny. You don't agree with that? No. Okay. So, and, and that's, you know, that's like the bank robber story or the, bank, the guy who saves the people in the bank. So uh, one guy was not lucky enough to be there to do the heroic thing. And the other guy was lucky enough to be there to do the heroic thing. And as far as I can tell, it could be that the guy who was lucky enough to be there to do the heroic thing uh, deserves moral credit and uh, praise, moral praise. Even though the guy who was unlucky enough not to be there doesn't deserve any moral credit and moral praise. And after all, he didn't, you know, do anything praiseworthy so yeah i just don't buy these inferences they seem uh, you know well invalid interesting they seem to me sort of intuitive both intuitive and to sort of follow necessarily and to cohere with the examples um so maybe this is 
sort of an irreconcilable difference between us. So maybe in, in the time that we have left for the main segment, we can talk a little bit about like the implications of your view. And I can maybe try to understand a little more what you think follows from this. I know you say that that's not sort of your main focus, generally speaking, but you say in the final chapter of the book, for example, that, you know, if we abandon belief in free will, if we adopt my view, right, we have to abandon accountability justified gratitude and warranted resentment. Um, now, it seems to me we can maintain or we can retain on my view what is valuable about accountability and quote unquote justified gratitude and that we're probably better off generally living without warranted resentment. Um, so I'm curious, I guess, what do you think would be like the worst cost that I would have to bear or bullet that I would have to bite if I was going to adopt a kind of incompatibilist luck all the way down, no free will view instead of your view. Yeah. You mean theoretical cost, not, um, either okay. theoretical or applied oh, or applied. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing is, well, we'll just take a step back and all this is anecdotal, but over the years I've gotten lots and lots of emails from people who were depressed to learn that neuroscientists had shown that there's no free will. And some of these people were on you know, the border of a breakdown, really. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I tried to comfort them. I, I couldn't just ignore them. So there is that kind of practical cost. If, if it turns out that um, people are persuaded they have no free will, some are going to go off the cliff. Um, there's that. But if we're just thinking about what's true and false, um, yeah, I think you could still have um, gratitude. Um, you could have, instead of a penal system, a sequestering system. I mean, this stuff mm -hmm. has been worked out to some degree by Dirk Paraboom, say. Um, sure. Greg Caruso, folks like that. Yeah. So we wouldn't lose, you know, as much as people think we would lose. Um, if people thought they didn't have free will and their lives weren't going so well, they might think, oh, geez, I can't really do anything about it. I don't have free will. So it could, you know, it could be discouraging to um, people. Um, and I actually do worry about things like that, but I try not to think about it when I'm thinking about whether we have free will or not. I just want to play it as straight as mm. I can. But if you're acting, asking about costs, yeah, I think yeah. those are some. I mean, at heart, I'm an applied ethicist, so it, it is incredibly important to me, you know, sort of what the applied implications are when you teach people. And as an, as, as someone working towards a moral education, uh, you know, approach, I do want to teach people that there is no free will and it's luck all the way down. And I want to know that it like, and I'm going to, you know, hopefully do research to try to find and, and, and make sure that it is sort of safe and healthy to do so. It is interesting that the, the two things you put forward are the two things that I've talked about a lot as being genuine concerns or risks with this approach, which is this nihilism and fatalism. Um, and it seems to me the best way to deal with those things would be to have a properly scaffolded education about these issues where you help someone understand that you know, you can have moral truths without moral responsibility. You can have more direct control the less you think that you have rele relevant control, for example, right? That there are sort of ways to, that like all of your reasons for acting in life, like all of the worthwhile ones persist, even when you recognize that the fact that you have them is the result of luck. Stuff like that, I think, 
that kind of scaffolding can really, because I've talked to people, lots of people who, who don't, you know, describe the same existential crisis that you're describing, some of them in my intro to ethics courses. And I think, you know, uh, to my knowledge, um, though I've, you know, heard messages 10 years later of people still talk, thinking about moral luck, they, they were never like, you know, I'm in crisis because of it. It was always like, it has actually helped me for the better. I feel more compassion or I feel more able to deal with things or something like that. So, you know, I guess from the anecdotal perspective, I think done properly, this kind of education seems better than what the alternatives it seems like would be, which would be, you know, um, either something like what you're going for is a kind of mixed agnosticism or a kind of noble lie approach. Yeah. And, you know, Saul Smolansky advocates the noble lie approach. Um, He sure does. What, you know, and that's an interesting idea, too. Um, What you could... Would you be in favor of noble lie? uh, No. (laughs) No. Okay. But what you could tell people is, well, you know, you do at least have what compatibilists call free will, <clears throat> whether you call it free will or not. And that's good enough. Like think, So you like to think in terms of control. Think about what Fisher calls uh, guidance control. So it's the sort of control you can have in a deterministic universe. And it's uh, all the control you need to act intentionally. Um, so maybe, right. you know, maybe the problem that, is whether, whether or not you have direct, you know, guidance control yeah. is a matter of luck on my view, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Like of all of like every model, every, you know, elbow room, reflective, you know, equilibrium, you know, model, I can say that's a good thing. I would like for people to have whatever you're describing, but whether they have it or not can't be the basis for moral responsibility because whether they have it comes down to luck, it seems like. Oh, well, and it seems like you have to agree that that's true. You just don't think that that's a problem, at least. Would you agree? That That's right. Yeah. Now, what I okay. was saying about uh, compatibilism, though, is if you wanted to comfort people that you talk out of believing in free will, you could say, hey, look, this is how I understand free will, how you do. And you don't have that. But you do have uh, what John Fisher calls free will. And Fisher's wrong, you could say, in calling it free will, but you have that, and it's you know it's a great mm-hmm. thing. It gives you sure. lots of uh, guidance, control over your intentional behavior, and you can tell people, and you can even uh, launch into programs of self improvement, and you can absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I, I believe in all of that, and I support all of that. Um, I also I, I think that you're better off if you tell them that they our luck all the way down, they become more effective at changing their own luck because they stop seeing this themselves as like this separate entity that, you know, it's similar to the way that like, think about the, you know, the, the, the correlations here to the conservative bootstrapping model, right? Where it's like, if you're poor, you, you know, in a just society, you deserve to be poor, right? Like you've chosen to not work hard enough or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if you, unless you adopt my view, you at some point along the line have to accept the idea that someone deserves to die poor in the gutter because they genuinely freely chose to die poor in the gutter. Um, do you feel like that necessarily follows from your view? No, no, okay. I, I don't. You know, I don't think that uh, everything we do, we do freely or anything like that. Um, but somebody could freely choose to die poor in the gutter, and on your view, they deserve it, right? Uh, if they freely chose to die poor in the gutter? Yeah. I, I would imagine that they wouldn't satisfy some rationality condition for for uh, acting freely. 
Does that create a problem for your view, like a kind of asymmetry, though, where it seems like all I have to do is act morally to no longer be held morally responsible because no one would reasonably on your view act morally. And so dying poor in the gutter is, you know, an unreasonable behavior and therefore we should prevent you for it. But all immoral behaviors are unreasonable behaviors. And so, no, it's, you know, it's more a sanity uh, requirement that I have. So uh, sane people can act immorally. And I suppose you can come up with a case where a person sanely prefers dying in the gutter to, you know, other ways of uh, behaving. Um, and if you could, you know, I might have to say, yeah, that guy uh, freely decided to do that. But I think it would be a really rare case. And probably, you know, it'd be mental illness and the guy would be, in my view, off the hook. Okay. So what if someone, you know, lives a middle-class life, learns about morality, learns about statistics, goes to a casino, gets really, really far into debt, right? And, you know, the mob's going to break their legs or something like that, right? Do they deserve what happens as a result of that behavior on your view? Uh, I I don't see why the person would deserve broken legs or... Or, or whatever, whatever comes of it. If it's not broken legs, then like being in poverty, do they deserve being in debt for the rest of their life or something like that? So we're supposing the person freely gambled away all his money. Is, is that the idea? Yeah. And then does he deserve to be poor as a consequence of his behavior? Uh, yeah, so we could think about what his family thinks. Could they blame him for their poverty? And if he freely gambled away all of his money uh, and was morally responsible for doing it, it looks like they would have the standing to blame him. They'd be justified in blaming him. Um, and so, yeah, so he would deserve... He would deserve blame for something making them poor. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems to me that, like, if you take that view you would have to make room for some amount of retributive justice in your model. It seems like, right. If someone has a, a reasonable claim to blame somebody for doing something immoral to them, do you think they deserve to extract, you know, punishment on that person as a result of that judgment? Yeah. I, I don't know about that. I, I don't know that they have the standing to punish, but they do have the standing to blame. Given that it's what, I mean, what is the point of blaming without something following from it? Like, if, if we lived in a world where blame never led to punishment, no, would anyone care about blaming each other? Uh, well, it depends on what you're going to count as punishment. Like, it would yelling at him be punishment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he would deserve that. All right, so some 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 negative social sanction, right? That yeah. come, brings with it hopefully a psychological cost. At best, he feels bad, or like at least like he feels shitty about it or something, right? Like you want to make him feel shitty because he deserves to feel shitty, and so you shout at him because he deserves it. Yeah, yeah, I think I I think I would endorse that. Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess I think that ends up being sort of a fundamental applied difference between our views and i think you know similarly if you open that door you you end up in a place where it's hard to deny sort of things like the the morality of radical wealth inequality because it came about meritocratically or something like that um 
but yeah, I just wanted to sort of nail down if there was like a practical difference in terms of what behaviors it seems like should follow from our different views. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, somewhere I say in talking about free will and moral responsibility, I steer toward the light, not the darkness. So I, uh, I don't say much about punishment at all. I don't say a lot about blame, really. Um, yeah, I think this is a common theme, actually, is my experience that like compatibilists of, of, the, of the liberal progressive persuasion tend to want to be sort of sympathetic compatibilists, right? All carrot, no stick, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I really don't think that you can have one without the other. And I don't think you can maintain these intuitions without opening the door for sort of conservative, punitive, you know, um, approaches to justice, I guess. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that's right. I mean, you know, you could be right. It's just that I don't really work on that part mm. of things. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. I wonder, you know, what well, you think about somebody like Putin, though. Does, uh, does he deserve right. to, <laughs> to be blamed? He does not deserve to suffer. <laughs> So, so I mean, the, the, what I teach people is that like the hardest bullet psychologically you're going to have to bite on my view is that on my view, literally no one deserves to suffer, including Hitler. Yeah. And that's that's a hard bullet for some folks to bite. I just think that like there's no way to avoid that. And that's why like I'll be universal salvationist. So I'll, I'll try to help people get there by asking them, you know, do you think on a long enough timeline everyone deserves salvation versus do some people deserve eternal punishment? And I think most people are intuitively inclined towards the salvationist mindset. And I would argue that that what they're just sort of saying there is, you know, everyone can be redeemed ultimately because we don't deserve to suffer. But anyway, that's a, that's a going a little too far afield. And I notice we're a little bit um, short on time here. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit for for VIP folks about sort of more of your arguments in the theoretical side, since I've harassed you about the applied a bunch. Um, but before we do that, I got to torture you a little bit. And before we do that, I always like to ask folks, you know, what resources they would recommend if folks wanted to sort of better understand their perspective or something that helped them get to where they are. Anything that like for folks who want to go deeper on this topic, where would you point them? If they don't have a lot of background in the area, I would recommend this new book of mine, Free Will and Opinionated Guide. Um, if they do have a lot of background, uh, I wonder. I think maybe I'd recommend my 2017 book, uh, Aspects of Agency. Or mm -hmm. you know what might be better? Because in Free Will and Luck, I talk about both sides of my view, both the libertarian side and the compatibilist side. Maybe I'd recommend mm -hmm. that. It's kind of old now. It's 2006. But, but mm. yeah, maybe that. Are there any folks who you feel like strongly oppose your view whose resource, you know, like as a resource that you would recommend where you feel like they really challenge you? Um, let me think. Um, you know what? Uh, so I did this book in 2019, Manipulated Agents, A Window to Moral Responsibility. And there's an author mm -hmm. meets uh, critics thing on that book in a journal called Criminal Criminal Justice and Philosophy, maybe? I forget the, the title of the journal. And there are articles in there by uh, John Fisher, Michael McKenna, and Ish Haji. 
And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that might be interesting to, they're critical articles, might be interesting to people. Criminal right. law and philosophy, maybe that's it. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, unfortunately, that means I now have to torture you. So, <laughs> what is this? This is, well, this is the enlightening round. Enlightening round two trolley boogaloo. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. So for folks who are not familiar, what's going to happen is I'm going to give you a series of trolley scenarios. You are going to tell me what you should do in this scenario. So the bar we are setting here is what should you do? Okay. Okay, Not what would you do? Should you do? All right. Are you ready to step up to the lever? Okay, so you're at the lever, right? Should you save five by killing one? Should I? Yes. All right. (laughs) So there, then let me ask, should you save five by pulling a lever that causes a machine to push someone onto the tracks instead of just changing the direction? Yes. Okay. Um, Now, should you save yourself by killing one? One other person. And these are strangers, innocents, etc. No. Okay. Um, Should you save yourself by letting another person die? Hmm. A person I could save or... Yes. So you're on one track. The train is headed towards them. All you have to do is not pull the lever. I I think there I I should save myself. Okay. Um, Should you save yourself by letting five people die? No. Okay. Um, Now, should you save your favorite artist's body of work by killing the artist? No. Okay. What if the artist is begging you to save the art over themselves? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, should you save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human? No. Hmm. Now, what if it turned out that you were the uh, sentient AI in this scenario? <laughs> That's right. good. Uh, then I say, no, I shouldn't kill myself. Okay, so you would let them die. Yeah. You, well, there's two questions here, right? Should you kill them to save yourself? Oh, no. Okay, but you should let them die to save yourself. Yeah. Just like you would if you were not the AI. I see. Okay. Um, last series here, right? Save a random non-human animal by killing one human. No. Okay. What about save your favorite specific non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Mm. Jeez. 
No. All right. And last one, just for you. Save a person who has free will by killing a person who doesn't have free will. <laughs> no. No? Wow. <laughs> just coming out strong against intrinsic value of free will, I see. All right. Kant's going to be very sad. Uh, congratulations. You survived the trolley. Uh, uh, boogaloo. How do you feel? Oh, I don't know. Worn out. <laughs> Good. <laughs> this is for posterity, so please be honest. Um yeah, I, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the VIP, but um, before we wrap up here on the main show, do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find you and your work? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? Uh, no, no, I'm not. They can, Smart uh, choice. They can just Google my name. Fair. All right. We will have that in the show notes. Um, then, um, Alfred, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, once again, the book is uh, Free Will, an Opinionated Guide, I believe, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, great, wonderful. All right, well, um, if you enjoy the show, folks, stick around, you know, join us on Patreon and hang out and listen to some more discussion. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, some of whom may be joining us from QED this past weekend, which was the most wonderful time ever, and everyone should go next year. Thanks to our newest monthly voidlings, Madhave, Reed Worm by Wildbow, uh, Sasha Hamilton, William Vineyard, and Sam Dono. Thanks to our newest monthly avout, Carl. I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, and thanks to our newest yearly Voidling patrons, uh, Craig Brozewski and Nick, and our newest yearly Avout patron, Michael T. Seaman. Welcome all to the Ironic Cult. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jay Aldenwalt. Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Lawrence Shielding, Serious Inquiries Only, who had a really great live show at QED that everybody should absolutely listen to about microdosing, that bastard Neil Polzin, Big Easy Blasphemy, oh, and all, oh, I'm sorry, apologies, thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Dave Maslich, and Creepy, Creepy Void Eyes. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' filmed live musical podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus voidy content. Most of all, no matter whether you're determined or random, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.